Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Humans Aren't Robots, a series of conversations with designers and creative thinkers uncovering the human elements of teams and modern business practices. I'm your host as always, Sam Davies, and today we have an incredible guest, Bryony Cole. Bryony is doing some really cool work in the field of sex tech. Sex tech? What's that? Actually, sex tech is a $30 billion industry at the moment and over the next four or five years looking to become $150 billion industry. Bryony has been spending the last four or five years interviewing and talking to a whole very diverse range of people from sex educators through to astronauts about uh, sex and narratives around that. So uh, she talks a lot through the lens of technology and wellness and how tech is actually changing sex for us as humans. Uh, but we dove in and talked about a whole range of things, um, narratives around sex and, and technology, how sex is communicated to young people, how technology is changing the way we look at sex. She also has a podcast called The Future of Sex, which I highly recommend listening to. Uh, we talked about it a little bit in, in this chat, has a fantastic format and some really insightful interviews. So uh, Let's not hear it from me. Let's hear it from Bryony so we can jump in at Pause Fest earlier in the year with Bryony Cole. So, Bryony, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on. Hey. How's Pause Fest been for you so far? Busy, busy, busy. Yeah? There's so much to look at and see. And I'm just like, do I have to talk to people? Because I just want to look at everything. <laughs> it's kind of like a mind explosion, isn't it? Right. Bit, yeah. yeah. So inspiring. Yeah. I love one thing that I really love about this event. So we've been coming for about six, six years now, I think. Is that you know it's it's the the speakers and the sponsors and everybody that gets involved stays around and, and sort of soaks it all up and totally. There's a whole community. There's a whole WhatsApp group with all the speakers at the moment. That's is there? on fire. Every time I look at it, there's a hundred plus new messages. <laughs> I was just speaking to. Whoa, hang on a second. Feel free to have one. I was speaking to uh, Devin Manusco, um, who we actually spoke to at a, another conference in Adelaide, Southstart. Um, and he was saying the same thing. Like, we asked him where the party was tonight. He's like, I don't know. I'm too scared to look at the WhatsApp group. There's, yeah. there's too many red bubbles yeah. there. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. So um, you're obviously here talking. But before we jump in to speak about what you've been talking about, yeah. I just heard Miles Orkin from Google talk. Did you, did you oh, see him? I didn't. It was really no. good. I what spoke was to that him. about? So he was talking about um, creative leadership and how to sort of, he was talking about culture, but, you know, in, in, in the rabbit ears, um, how, you know, how to actually help build teams that, you know, are more authentic and that feel as if they can be, you know, themselves at work, which is, sounds very simple, but as a leader, I know it's actually quite difficult to do. One of the tools that he was using was actually just getting people to have actual human conversations at work. Often we, you know, wear these masks at work and people don't actually know that much about who you are or where you come from. So one of the questions that he asked, I'm going to ask you is, um, you know, the tougher questions that you don't generally, you know, speak to people about. So something like, what was a time in your life that you felt was a defining moment for you that sort of changed your life mm. for the better or worse? Mm. Um, I would say being broken up with. I was madly in love with this guy and we were living together and one day he walked out the door and he never came back. Wow. That's brutal. It was brutal. <laughs> it was like you go through the fire. I think heartbreak is one of those things that you feel like is only ever happening to you at that mo moment or could only be as bad. And, um, you know, we all go through these moments that I think heartbreak really defines you. You know, you, you struggle through it and you figure out, oh, yeah, everyone goes through this, but it's such a personal journey and it impacts so many 
um, aspects of your life and relationships moving forward. So for me, that was like a real um, strength builder ultimately and got me uh, skilled in the art of <laughs> knowing how to, how to look at people and, and um, you know, just like a character, like what character builds. So, yeah. It's always adversity that builds us stronger though, mm. isn't it? It's very rare you ask that question of someone and they you know, have this great defining life moment that was this big shining positive. It's, yeah. it's, often, it's often a negative. Oh, uh, yeah. The, the worst times stick out more than the better times, <laughs> don't they? Yeah. You need both of them though, right? Yeah. Isn't it like you need five compliments to, to counteract one like mean thing someone would say to yeah, you? Yeah, interesting. <laughs> it, 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 it makes a lot of sense. But I think the uh, I look back on like my my business career and when you're going through those like you know shitty situations where things just feel like you know you got that feeling in your chest and you're like I don't want to do this anymore. But you look back a year later and you're always like, oh, that was worthwhile in its own crazy kind of way. Well, they say that feelings really only last six seconds or emotions come to visit you, right? But we think that they're so much a part of ourselves that the emotions are us. But if you can hold on to those six seconds, hopefully that feeling where your heart's about to stop moves through you. Um, but yeah, just, you know, those feelings feel crippling at the time, whether it's heartbreak over business or over another lover. It's, um, it just feels so real that you think this is never going to end. I was reading an article yesterday in prep for one of the chats I had um, about that same sense of heartbreak over leaving a career. And, and that could be, you know, through you know, losing the job or just, you know, changing. But that, that's, a, that's a big part of your life. And similar to in an you know, in interpersonal relationship, it's a, a big piece of you is taken away. Well, it's your identity, 100%. I think. It's who you see yourself as and who you think, you know, so much of how we see ourselves is reflected in um, how other people see ourselves. You know, people are such great mirrors that we see ourselves through the eyes of someone else and yeah that that like taking away that identity that piece that you think of who you are this is my career like I think if someone took away future of sex today I often think about this I'm like who would I be but in fact I did not have this career four years ago and so um, I was definitely not associated with sex and tech and everything that came with that before and it's so it is such an interesting thing to think about the heartbreak that comes from leaving a career and leaving an identity behind and there's something also really exciting about that like who could I be and who who do I want to be nice I reckon we'll, we'll touch base on that a little bit later because I've, I've got some questions around that but let's jump into um, why you're here at pause and, and what let's you've been talking it. about so yeah. uh, your keynote was yesterday yeah um, give us a bit of a recap I sadly wasn't there but uh, no some problem. of my team were though no, so. it's all good. <laughs> here's the short short version so I talk about future of sex um, through the lens of technology and wellness so I've been studying sex tech which is a 30 billion dollar industry today valued at 123 billion dollars in the next five years as part Part of this sexual wellness industry. So I've been studying this for the past four years in, through interviewing and researching um, with all sorts of people that I would consider experts in these domains. So scientists, uh, founders, sex therapists, entertainers, even astronauts, looking at how technology impacts their intimate lives and society at large and just why it's so hard to talk about because we, we know sex is a taboo topic and yet there is so much potential with technology to enhance that part of our lives and thinking about sex not just about an orgasm but everything that surrounds that so your health 
education, um, sexuality, so gender identity and things like crime and violence reporting, assault reporting, all these different aspects of sexuality that when we mix them with technology can have really profound effects, um, can help us solve social issues like sex education, but also come with a set of challenges like, um, you know, interfering or perhaps disrupting intimacy in terms of emotional intimacy, certainly physical intimacy and whether that's a good thing. So we looked at yesterday um, the rise of like virtual assistants that outsource our emotions, right, and our intimacy skills, whether that's GhostBot. So GhostBot is a, a, a bot you can engage, um, especially for women, where if you're on a dating app and you're, you know, suddenly the conversation goes a bit sour and you're like, oh, I'm gonna, I want to ghost this guy, like, uh, you know. And inevitably those, those um, conversations can turn quite aggressive or a bit sour. You can employ GhostBot to deal with Dave from Tinder and, and you know, they, the bot continues to have a conversation with this guy and so... Yeah, great. In one way, everyone was like, that's amazing in the audience. But I think the other question is, do we really want to outsource those challenging conversations to a bot, um, especially for younger generations around setting boundaries? It's also like, do we want to outsource like heartbreak, those sorts of things, such human experiences um, to outsource? And we also looked at the rise of like virtual assistants and marriages to human hologram marriages in Japan, which effectively do the same thing. But they don't ghost, they actually attach to you and send you emotional text messages and say, oh, I miss you, can't wait for you to come home and why are people marrying technology? So I, I watched the, the Gatebox video that I think you use in, in your keynote and I've, I've read a little bit about that. So it's, it's essentially sort of a, yeah, a virtual hologram that can plug into like your Google Nest or you know, into your, into your um, automations in your home. So um, you could have you know, someone turn the lights on when you get home or you know, in the future you know, cook dinner or you know, what, what, who knows what's coming next. Like, they're very, there's, a, there's a lot of human questions around those things because on one hand, that could be really empowering for some person that, that isn't great at forming you know, interpersonal, interhuman connections, right? That's actually a way of having an experience that maybe they wouldn't otherwise have. And on the other hand, there's that, I suppose, scary thought about it, you know, depersonalizing us and taking us away from the human element of life. Yeah, yeah. And, and perhaps for people that just don't have the opportunity to cultivate those skills because they immediately default to technology, like is there an opportunity here for technology to help us be better at that and help us put down the phone and actually engage with our partners? Um, I think that's that they're really exciting examples of sex tech at the moment that are sort of taking off and getting some funding is the apps that are used for couples to help them become more intimate, whether it's series of activities, workshops or telehealth and like um, sex therapy tools, like providing people with the tools to actually be human and be in relationship with, uh, with each other mm. is a real positive. So a big part of what I think what you're studying what needs to change is, is this narrative around, around sex and intimacy and everything that comes around it. So in, in the four years that you sort of been deep into this, do you feel as if and there's obviously different in different cultures in the world too, but I mean, let's just focus on, on, on the West, sort of where we are now. Um, is, is the sort of taboo lifting? Is, is the conversation becoming more open, do you think? I do. I think there's really good signals that it's changing. Might be a bit slowly, but we see this, um, you know, even, you know, I go back to, I'm an 80s kid, uh, grew up in the 80s, but go back to that rabbit episode in Sex and the City, the vibrator, Charlotte getting a vibrator. And, you know, when you look at the research as well, I mean, I remember that as a high school student seeing that, but also sex toy sales spiked because suddenly, you know, sex toys are on mainstream television. And then we had 
um, Fifty Shades of Grey and this BDSM culture. The trouble I have with those moments, even though they help bring sexuality into the mainstream conversation, is women's pleasure is often presented as strange or funny, humorous um, or weird, um, even to women that are experiencing it. So today, you know, fast forward another couple, a decade, more couple of decades, um, Gwyneth Paltrow is a great example of this, kind of presents it in a funny, humorous or alternative way in terms of sexuality and pleasure, so we're seeing that. But it's also festivals like Pause Fest where they're putting sex tech on the agenda that makes it an accessible conversation that normalises sexuality and that is a big part of the sex tech industry and the the job that we have to do is actually just normalising the fact that this is something that happens to everyone, it's how we all got here on the planet um, and that, that helps by having those platforms and then I think when I look at how this has changed today is like mainstream media reporting on this today. You, they can't get enough of it. And four years ago when I started, it was much more alternative media or edge, edgy um, outlets that would talk about sex tech. And today, you know, you have like endless opportunities to talk about this sure. for big platforms. Vice might run it, but not Channel 10. Yeah, but now Channel 10 are. Mm. It's great. Really, just thinking back on, I mean, I'm an 80s baby as well, just thinking back on... so. It, I remember sitting watching the the masturbation episode of Seinfeld, right? Because Seinfeld actually did a pretty pretty good job of sort of just normalizing sexuality, I think, too. They did they did it in a way they didn't talk about it explicitly. Um, but there's that episode where they're trying to hold off. Have you seen that episode? I'm trying it, to think. It's a classic episode. So is it the lane? Um, all of them. So they have a competition. It's called the competition, right? Where they can see who can go the longest. Um, Kramer's out first. Um, but I remember watching it. I would have been. So it would have been like. 94 so I was probably 11 or 12 so I kind of knew what they were talking about but my sister didn't and we're watching it with my parents and I remember asking them and how awkward that conversation was at that point she would have been a couple of years younger but but it's funny seeing okay we've got mainstream television sort of normalizing just you know human sexuality but then still that you know that you know uh, repressive kind of yeah what you know well, we the, don't really want to talk about this yeah. in front of the kids well don't they, i mean poor parents they didn't have the tools either like who was teaching them you know like they grew up in what the 50s like you know 60s is like well, it was really hard for them i don't think we gave we have given parents the tools to be able to talk about sex and everything that surrounds sex right consent and communication and stis and all these things that parents should be able to talk to their kids about especially at a really young age today because we all carry around smartphones kids inevitably have to have them at some point and then they have what is effectively porn in their pocket right they can access that at any time usually Um, and if you set the the um, sort of barriers on the phone or the boundaries on their phone they're going to use one of their friends phones so that's going to happen and we need to help parents have those conversations with their kids and I know you've talked on your on your own podcast to people around this. There needs to be, I suppose, because kids are going to access porn no matter what, 100%. I mean, I remember being, you know, 14 years old and, I mean, it was much harder for us to access then. You had to go, you know, literally jump through hoops. Yeah. But we still managed yeah. to do it, right? That's right. <laughs> so now if it's, you know, as easy Take as it is. Take forever to download. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, don't crash dad's computer. Prior to the internet. <laughs> so this would have been, you know, not, DVDs. Not, yeah. VHS. Yes. <laughs> old school. <laughs> and the books. Yeah. Magazines. Um but yeah, it was. Um, but I think that so talking about content that is actually you know one made for women, not from the male perspective, and two you know actually putting things out there that are going to be empowering as opposed to um, 
you know, having a negative effect on a young person that might be watching it. Because there is this, I suppose, worry about the over-sexualization of, of younger people now, um, you know, with things like Instagram and, you know, this, this TikTok. Yeah, TikTok's really interesting. It's, it's actually kind of scary. I, I don't use TikTok a lot, but I, I jump in and have a look just in the, you know, the world I live in. And, it, and it, you know, it is sort of pre-teens and teens primarily using it. And there, there is that feeling of sort of, I don't know if I, mean, I don't know if I should be watching this. Yeah, know, as, yeah. A, as a male yeah. adult, so it's, yeah, um, and it's not going away. So no, that's right. We need to again just accept that. I think people again, when they ha- were confronted by that, that feeling of like oh, I don't know if I should be watching this or I don't know, like I feel uncomfortable. Mm. Our tendency is to want to look the other way, and part of the research I'm doing is actually like, no, we really need to look at this stuff and understand it and talk about it. Otherwise, it will get carried away into the darkest steps. I mean, it's why, like, revenge porn laws have taken so long to come into effect because people are like, oh, we don't want to deal with this. We actually did some work, um, so we built uh, mobile apps as well. We did some work with the Law Society of South Australia a few years ago and built a tool for them. It was around cyberbullying, but a lot of it had to do with um, revenge porn and, um, you know, the nudes and selfies and these types of things. It was an, an app aimed at sort of 13 to 14-year-olds to sort of start giving them, well, one, tell them what the, the, the legalities are because a lot, of, a lot of the laws are still very antiquated, antiquated, right? So the laws haven't kept up with the technology. So you can be in a position as a 14-year-old where you might find yourself um, you know, in serious trouble for doing something that just feels normal to you. So at least telling kids what is what the real-world um, repl- uh, scenarios are about that and then what happens next, right? Totally. It's so important. And um, <laughs> most kids, as you said, don't know. Most parents don't know. Most people don't know. So it's like how do we make this sort of more visible yeah and it's not this case of oh well they just shouldn't be doing it well, that, mm-hmm. that's, that's that's just not real <laughs> it's just not real life now. yeah yeah i think you I mean, you might have been talking about it in one of your um, podcasts but you know the losing your facetime virginity yeah so. that's right yeah yeah, yeah. We, we i think i touched about oh, somewhere yesterday that that's sort of a term we'd never heard of i mean i certainly when i first heard it i was like what is that um and it is popularized as this thing of like choosing who the first person will be that will you know you'll masturbate on on facetime with in front of that's a whole set of issues that you know we're not equipped to deal with and kids don't know no i think it's cool and you don't want to be in a position where so like talking about my parents watching seinfeld in 1995 and feeling like they didn't have the toolkit like i don't think you know us as young adults want to be in a position where we because as you get older you do start feeling um, distance from youth culture and, and what's going on um it, it's almost like there needs to be tools to keep everybody in touch with, with what's happening. Yes, yes. I'm aiming to build them. <laughs> but I think that, yeah, people do need to, to start talking about that. And we probably need more sort of ambassadors to be engaging with youth, right? Like I take kids out for a slice of pizza and just talk to them informally about this stuff because that's a really easy way as a trend researcher to, to get a thing. But, um, yeah, there needs to be, I think, more engagement with that demographic in the building of these policies or the building of like education systems. I know Elephant Ed here in um, Melbourne do a really great job of engaging with like younger instructors or teachers to go around to schools and give relevant sex education, which I think is a great model. Um, Yeah, big opportunity. Is there, I mean, you would know, is there, what is the sort of national framework around sex education these days? In Australia, I'm not sure, sadly. I wish I knew more. I only know from my personal experience that um, it was like, you know, watch a black and white film on TV. 
Um, and in America, it's like 13 states need to be medically accurate. So it's really, it's really, and abstinence only education is big there with the religious influence. But it's not so much abstinence only here. I think it's just a lack of education around pleasure. I think we're better at consent now. What age do they start doing sex education? I think it's still still in high school. So we had, at my primary school in year three, we had our teacher got one of our um, fellow students' parents, who was a doctor, to come in and do um, a very, very... I remember it quite clearly because it was obviously, um, you know, fairly new to us all, like, whoa. But... um, but they didn't get consent of all the parents. He didn't get consent of all the parents. I'm not sure. He, he ended up getting fired. A lot of the parents sort of, you know, went nuts about it and he got fired. We loved him as a teacher. He was actually a really great teacher. Um, indeed. Um, it's a strange thing I suppose to do under the guise of the parents. Um, it was interesting. But, um, yeah, like I, I felt like at that stage that was a fine time to learn about yeah. it. You know, in, yeah. in, that, in that context from a medical professional. Yeah, I think in Finland they start at five years old. Mm. And it's sex, the conversations don't have to be explicit or about sex, it can be about consent or unwanted touching. And that really helps with, especially now that kids are on technology and we don't really know what they're doing, is if you can create an environment as a parent or a teacher that's safe enough for your kid to come to you and say, hey, this is weird, like this guy's just asked me this picture or this. If you can create an environment for at least when they feel funny to come to you, I think you're winning. Yeah. Because, like you said before, it's not just all about the orgasm. I mean, and it's reproduction. Is, I mean, it's it's such a strange thing that the the reason why we exist is yeah. something that's kept from us yes. until we're like you know ten years old. People probably know about Santa Claus before they know about. For sure, for sure, <laughs> and they know Santa Claus isn't real yeah, by the time, and then saying. they find out about sex. Um, something you touched on before about in the last four years, the media being more open. So. Mm. Um, I think you know Leah Callan Butler as yeah, well. So, so yeah, I'm mates with her. Yeah, um, so hi Leah. <laughs> hi Leah. Um, so I actually met her here a couple of years ago when she was um, with Intimate talking about that. And so some of that um, morality laws that sit around finance, for example, that um, is interesting. But the same thing happens in the media, right? So um, Pillow.io, which is something I've heard you talk about before, I saw that's been taken from the App Store. Um, so how do we start dealing with the, you know, the, the Googles and the Facebooks of the world, the, the Apples of the world that are essentially running our world? Um, that do have you know strict morality laws around some of this stuff. We protest and we do take lawsuits for discrimination to them. So it's very grassroots at the moment. I was involved in a protest outside Facebook headquarters, you know, early last year, um, with a whole band of women of sex tech, and we all have receipts, you know, of like being banned from advertising and it's not explicit at all, juxtaposed with ads for Viagra or something that's overtly sexual but is advertising like a soft drink or something. Um, So there is still that discrimination with anything involved with sex, it's considered adult. Um, so how do we fight it? We just keep fighting. You've got to really love sex tech and want to make something happen to, to be in it because there's a lot of barriers, like, as you said, banking, advertising, which how are you going to reach your customers otherwise? And I think what we do is kind of find hacks, right, of ways around things to try and to try and get the word out. But there's yet to be an alternative platform that has the same reach. So yeah, space. It's, it, it, and it's... It's interesting that it is still so grassroots. And, and there's obviously, I suppose, a, a legacy of you know, the, the adult industry sort of being tied to a more nefarious sort of uh, part of society. But um, that seems to be shifting quite a lot as well. And a lot of the, sort of the, you know, the sex tech, so the toys and whatnot, you know, you've got mainstream brands now coming in and um, co-opting that and, and sort of getting involved. Totally. 
Goop's a great example of that. Yeah, I think cool. they've done it really well. The conversation does seem to be changing. I mean, podcasting and sort of the, the media that is available, especially from a female perspective, um, and hearing things from a from a, a, a woman's perspective as mm. opposed to from a male, mm. seems to be growing mm. considerably. Yeah, and I actually think there's actually saying actually a lot, but I do think there's a big space for men there to to also have a voice because what we hear it's great that we have all these pleasure conversations that are coming out now with involving women I think that's really important and needs to grow but one thing I notice is the lack of conversation about male sexual pleasure in a way that's kind of healthy or promoting wellness we often see with male either sex toys or sex tech it's either um, yeah relegated to that like porn industry stuff or the conversation is about like clinical issues or dysfunctions and there's this huge gap in between there of like talking about the day-to-day and the real life experiences of men too and of course minority groups but yeah I think that someone sort of could take that space too and I think that would be really healthy for everyone. We were talking about it at breakfast, not, not from a sex perspective, but just from a... Um, so I'm interviewing um, the, the founder of Women in Tech this afternoon. Um, just there is a space, I suppose, as a kind of you know, white cisgendered male that, you know... It's hard to have conversations, I suppose, going, well, a lot of us will sort of raise in a certain way, this is what it's like to be a man. Um, and that's sort of changing slowly. But then there, there are nuanced conversations then about, well, how do we operate as, you know, as these men in the world and, and have those conversations yeah. and feel free to have the conversations too? Yeah, I think it's so necessary. Like you, and, and that's also like finding a new identity, right? Yeah, like to do, to do the loop. It's like, well, who are we now post me too and post these movement and knowing different things now and uh, you know changing as a society what does that mean to be a man what does it mean curious <laughs> I mean it, and it, it's, I think it's difficult I, I think I, I'm in a position where I was raised around a lot of women and I felt like that I didn't I have I was saying this morning to um, my team I have colleagues who are you know raised you know as alpha men essentially you know strong father play sport shut up you know that, that kind of attitude not a lot of sort of you know uh, touchy-feely emotional connection as a kid and then to, to, to try and change that mind state as an adult is it's quite difficult you've been told well this is not how you should be society says no to this and that having a conversation about that often is very polarizing I think people say oh shut up you know we don't want to hear about your sort of privileged whinging but there is yeah there's a, there's a lot there to break down and I think from a you know psychological perspective it's very hard to deal with so, uh, yeah, you're right. It's a, it's a much bigger conversation. I mean, I think everybody, all of us as humans, you know, it's a strange thing sort of <laughs> living in a culture and growing up and dealing with the world around right. us. Right. And it is, uh, you know, it, I guess everyone says this when it's their time, but it does feel, especially now, because technology is making us move so much faster. That Back to tech. So I similar as you grew up without the internet and then with the internet and, and really embraced the internet heavily as sort of a, as a teenager and thought it was this amazing tool for connection I've always seen it as um, as a you know a window to the world as opposed to anything nefarious at all I've always had nothing but the you know the greatest admiration for saying well I can access things that I never could access before um, there seems to be, I suppose, this level of passivity that's come into how people interact with the, with the net. So you look at Instagram as an example or TikTok. One, I see it as this, it's a content platform where people can actually create. So TikTok's amazing. People have been, people have been so creative. They have this tool that allows them to be 
you know, expressive. And you know, I mean, I would have loved that when I was a kid. I mean, that would have been incredible. We were recording tape to tape, you know. Um, but then the vast majority of people are just consuming as opposed to being the creators and, and sit back and say, well, I wish I was them or I can't be them or I'm not as beautiful as them. Um, how, do, how do we go about, I suppose, increasing the the connectivity part of you know, social media in particular, but the internet. So, cause I always see it frustrates me when I put out a lot of content as you do, you know, we, we, we're creating things. Um, and I think because of that, I interact with other people that are creating too. And I, I like having those conversations and I actively engage that. But often, as you would know, a lot of people don't. So it is, it is that sort of I'm broadcasting, but nobody's, nobody's feeding back. The, the technology we have now allows the feedback loop. How do we encourage that, especially from young people, to, to tell them that you know this can be a two-way conversation. It doesn't just have to be that passive watching other people do mm, things. That's a really good question. I mean, I feel like that happens throughout all society, right? Like, it, not to get too up myself or anything, but just in general, creators are artists, right? So it's just like being able to enable everyone to create. I think that TikTok and other internet tools have done a really good job of that. I think humans just lazy, right? Like, <laughs> creation takes energy. Cons- consumption is ve- as, is a very passive tool, and it's about inspiration. Like, what inspired me to create Future of Sex? What inspired you to create? And it's it's helping kids find their inspiration, which is really important. I wish I had the answer to that, you know. And I think pre-internet, um, it's kind of it was a beautiful time because we had to go out and create, you know, imaginary houses in, you know, outside or game, make games up. And today, yeah, there isn't so much of a necessity to create. We can just sort of... Do you think it's really changing us? So, like, I know that there's that conversation, oh, kids used to play outside, but I can still see, like, the technology for me is, is so, like, being on that sort of, you know, on the forefront of it, I just saw it as, wow, this is just another cool way that we can you know, interact with the world and, and be creative. It was no different from... So, I mean, it's hard to know whether it, it's actually killing interpersonal communication. Uh, if anything, for me, it helped it because I could have friends all around the world and, you know, when I was living overseas, I can communicate back at home. So it actually accelerated, I think, you know, interpersonal communication in a different way, right? Like, but I don't feel chatting to someone is any different than, than really having a, a face-to-face conversation. It's slightly different, but it's still... You're still engaging and, you know, sharing. So I, I wonder if it's sort of just a... Us sort of looking back, oh, it was all better back in our day. Because every yeah. generation seems to do that, I think. Yeah, yeah that, for sure, right? Like, talk to my parents for sure. Their thinking is better in their day, for sure. But there is, yeah, I just, yeah, I, I've forgotten what I was going to say then. But I do think there is something to be said about inspiring people to create. I don't know. Um, I, I did have something. <laughs> and we, we obviously can't all be, everyone can't be the creators, right? So, But even just on a level, I think of, so one thing I think is amazing about the internet is you can actually reach out and have conversations with people that you otherwise wouldn't. So even if it's not, you know, creating great TikTok videos or, you know, starting a podcast, it could just be, you know, just you understanding that these tools are, are not just for, I suppose, you know, looking out at, I wish I could do that. You know, you can actually connect or, or learn to code or, you know, learn, you can learn anything you want. Yeah, that's true. I, I remembered what I was going to say now. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but yeah, the te- the te- this sort of thing happens with technology or any innovation, I think, anyway. There's always the, 
opportunity for it to go positively as you are a great example of and to be challenging and I think for most people they experience both right and it's this thing of like sometimes I want to create a bunch and sometimes I feel shit about myself because I'm watching Instagram and I'm like oh my god I just went down a four hour hole and it has not produced any feel terrible about yourself yeah Yeah. so I think this is just like an inevitable part of life today Tiffany Schlein wrote a great book recently called 24-7 and um, she advocates or 24-6 actually she advocates for one day of tech like every digital detox and all that sort of stuff but it's really interesting to try that in terms of the lens of creation and figure out yeah and just figure out how much uh, time I can put into making stuff again and how many more ideas I have when I'm not always plugged into the matrix. 100%. We talked about it a lot at Pause Fest this week about, so well, I was talking to someone yesterday who had worked um, on earlier Nokia phones, had been in mobile phones for, for 20 years basically, and I don't think anybody understood, like it wasn't like this sort of conscious, we're going to make tools that are going to take over everyone's mind and all their attention, like it's just naturally happened organically, and now we're sort of retroactively going, oh shit, we spend too much time on these things, so I've got... You know, and I'm glad that you know Apple put these features in, but I've got screen time block on apps during up until 10 o'clock in the morning. and But I literally have to force myself not to go on Instagram. Otherwise, it, like subconsciously, I'm just back there trrolling through. And you're right, that is time where I could be doing you know, a whole bunch of things. Or just giving your brain a rest. Yeah, literally. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, um, I'm bad. conscious of your time. Uh, I know you've got a phone call. Quick question about your podcast. So your podcast is The Future of Sex. Yeah. I really love the format. I like how you um, how you structure it. How did you come to that sort of uh, format and structure? I really just made it up. I was listening to podcasts that I liked, and I think, um, oh, what was it? Was it maybe Wait What or oh, the name escapes me right now? But I was like, oh, I love how they bring in different sort of a bit of color into the the episodes and different perspectives, and use different clips and make it a bit poppy. And for me, that was the most engaging. It kind of feels to me like a story or writing a story or filming a movie it's just do you sit and and like write the story and then go back and work where you can bring interviews in or do you start with the interviews and then I start with the topic in mind so for instance space and then space and sex and I think well who who would be interesting to talk to who knows the most about this an astronaut maybe a researcher and um, a psychologist do those interviews you never know where those interviews are going to go and then from there I get a transcript and cut it all up and figure out what's the what's the common themes here what's the patterns what's the narrative mm. and you edit it yourself do you or? I don't thank god <laughs> because the story got enough enough going through the transcripts but I have an editor um, who's great Chad um, I think it's I, I really like a lot of the um uh, podcasts that I suppose are more sort of deep journalism where you know like um, Radio Lab's a great example they've been doing it for a long time I mean those types of stories take months to put together sort of but I, I think you've got sort of a nice in between where you're able to weave a story and then pull in some of your experiences and conversations you've had yeah yeah it has been a lot of fun it's I just want to get back to it now you know sometimes you have to take a break from it because it is quite intensive making uh, as you know and then so yeah now I'm, I'm actually in Melbourne I bought all my podcast gear over here so I could um, start making again and be a bit quiet at home nice you're based in new york are you now mm-hmm. nice yeah. how do you like that it's very busy but i love it yeah beautiful my wife's from there originally so we're okay. over there for the holidays oh, so good yeah. yeah beautiful well if people want to find out more about you where can mm. they uh, where can they find yeah you? future of sex i think the easiest now is instagram future of sex on instagram or future of sex.org okay beautiful no worries thanks for being at pause and a uh, pleasure to speak with you 
Hey everybody, Sam here again. Thanks so much, Bryony, for the conversation and for Pause Fest for making it happen. Some incredible insights there into, you know, perhaps a new world for some of you. Some of the stuff like Gatebox and some of this tech that's coming out is is really interesting and, and challenging, I think, what it means to be a modern human. And uh, I'm really interested in, in some of the angle of where this goes. You know, you see people getting there legally married to robots you know in, in japan and things like this so you know wh- where does this put us in the future it starts putting us in a sort of a blade runner kind of scenario anyway uh, enough from me thanks so much for listening if you enjoyed this podcast you can check out our whole backlog wherever you get your podcasts from and uh yeah share it around if you found some insights thanks so much for listening and we'll catch you next time cheers bye